are, of course, in Matthew. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and uh, get, turn to chapter 19 of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty uh, to spare, so raise your hand and, and we can get you one. Last week, Mike wrapped up chapter 18 of Matthew, <clears throat> so today we're going to be continuing into chapter 19. And chapter 18 was filled with teachings from Jesus. It was the fourth of five major sections of teaching, and it was really focused on how people living, um, people in a community of Jesus followers should be behaving amongst each other. When we get to chapter 19, excuse me, we're going to find that Jesus and his disciples have now moved on from the town they were in, the area of Galilee, and they're drawing closer to Jerusalem at this point. So from now on, we're going to be seeing them Jesus performing his ministry along the way to Jerusalem. And by this time, the fame of what Jesus could do, the miraculous healings and, and provisions of food and things like that, uh, had spread. He's, he's a famous guy, and large crowds of people are following him and flocking to him wherever he goes. So, <clears throat> let's read together Matthew 19. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee And came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What's the King James version of that? Let no man put asunder. Yeah, it's often that uh, said at weddings. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So verse 1 starts off with this same formulaic phrase that we've seen elsewhere throughout Matthew, that phrase, when Jesus had finished. So that, again, marks the end of that fourth of five major sections of teaching. And we're going to continue to see discourse and teaching throughout the next section, but it's more in the context of the, the narrative. They're being woven into a narrative of Jesus and his disciples traveling to Jerusalem and his ministry along the way. So Jesus, again, he left the region of Galilee. That was the region of the, the Sea of Galilee, which is really a, a lake, a freshwater lake. And it's, um, it's a big lake, and there are fishermen, fishermen villages all around the lake. Now they're coming to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, so they've 
traveled quite a ways south, and they're entering, as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem, it's getting more and more of an urban environment. So they're almost like in the outskirts um, or the suburbs of Jerusalem, a little more populated. And verse 2 says that large crowds followed him. And then this is probably realized a mix of people who either wanted to hear him teach and actually learn from him, or people who just wanted to be healed or had someone, a loved one with them who they, they wanted him to heal. And Jesus did, of course, heal them when they came to him. And then, then of course, there's the Pharisees who certainly can't uh, leave, leave him alone. They're, they're there just to, just to try to trap him. And I think it's kind of telling that the, the, the Pharisees' hearts and their motives they're approaching this guy who's literally healing people miraculously, and they interrupt him for the purpose of trying to trip him up, to trap him in, in the, something they could get him in trouble for. Now remember, these Pharisees, this, this is a group of people who are members of the religious elite. They consider themselves to be the leading experts in interpreting Jewish law, the law of Moses. Their intention in approaching Jesus is to discredit him, to get him to contradict the law that was given through Moses. And the fact that they're so obsessed with creating a scandal out of this guy, it's like they don't even notice that he's out here miraculously healing people. He's clearly the Messiah. He's demonstrated it over and over again. But they just feel their power and their authority being threatened by him, and so they're trying to trap him. And the question they ask him, interestingly enough, actually reflects a debate that was occurring within the Pharisees at that time. It was essentially what we would consider like a political hot topic of the culture of the time, of a debate between two parties, two schools of teaching in the Pharisees. The school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And it comes down to two divergent views on how they interpreted this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. So the first school, the school of Hillel, interpreted that phrase, uh, find something displeasing or something indecent, some indecency. They interpreted that very loosely, and so they taught that Because this is in here, Moses permitted men to divorce their wives for literally any reason, including burning her husband's dinner, I kid you not, or having too bushy of eyebrows. If he found that displeasing, he could divorce her. I'm serious. (laughs) Or another, and this was actually a common one, if a woman was unable to bear children, it was almost just expected that he would discard her and try again with someone else. Now, the school of Shammai followed a stricter interpretation and only allowed divorce in cases of adultery or sexual immorality or some other major issue of sin, okay, not eyebrows. Like, it had to be a major issue. Of course, that wasn't as popular because you can understand why the first one would be more popular among men who wanted to just get, get as many wives as they wanted throughout their lives. So the Pharisees are basically asking Jesus to choose a side, pick a side in this controversy so that they can stir up strife. And when Jesus responds, eventually he is going to kind of side with the school of of Shammai, but at first he doesn't even choose a side. He's going to, first what he says is a huge insult to them. 
And it makes it clear that the whole existence of this controversy is really a product of sinful hearts. So he, he answers in typical Jesus fashion with a question, right? In verse 4, he says, have you not read? Now think about this. These are Pharisees. These are the ultimate Bible nerds. They literally have the entire Torah memorized. Any one of these guys could quote the entire book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. The entire thing. And Jesus asks, have you even read it? I mean, come on. And then he references Genesis 1 and 2, which are, I would, in my opinion, the most seminal passages of Scripture. It's the origin story of humanity itself, and it provides the foundation for everything else in the Bible. So clearly they would be very familiar with this passage. Have you not read? And he quotes from Genesis 1, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, after Adam and Eve come together, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees, have you even read this? It would be like me going up to a professor of math at a university and being like, do you even know what two plus two is? Or a professor of literature, do you even know the alphabet? Like, this is like the most basic, simple passage, and he's accusing them of not even knowing it. Of course they've read it. Of course they know the story. So by Jesus asking this question, he's implying that they're not understanding a fundamental truth about humans and what we're created for. That by getting caught up in all this political warfare, they're missing the point. It's sort of tragic irony that they're so obsessed with knowing the law that they lose track of what the law exists for in the first place. Ultimately, they've read it, they've memorized it, they know it, but that's different from understanding it. And these men were motivated by greed and by power rather than by loving God and loving others, which is what Jesus says the whole Testament is about. So their lens for interpreting Scripture is warped, and that's really what Jesus is calling out here. Now, the Pharisees, they don't really exist as a group today. Uh, the Jewish, there still are Jewish synagogues and rabbis and teachers, uh, but there are no more Pharisees. But that doesn't mean that any of us can't fall into that same trap of legalism or of, or of abusing Scripture or religion as a political tool or as a way of manipulating people and getting our, our way. So be wary of anyone who does that and, just, and be careful not to do it yourself. So Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of these Pharisees. But in the meantime, I don't think, I'm not sure they even caught how badly they were insulted in that moment. Because I think they've actually, they think they caught him in a scandal. Because Jesus' initial reply basically negates both schools of teaching, implies nobody should ever get divorced for any reason. And that goes directly against the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. So if I were the Pharisees at this point, I might think, oh, we've struck gold here. He's going against the law of Moses. We've got him. To them, he's conflicting against Moses, which contradicts the very heart and soul of Jewish law and culture. So if that couldn't discredit Jesus' authority, what else could? I think they'd be delighted. So I kind of picture that when they come back with, 
well, then why did Moses say this? It's like, ha, Moses said otherwise. And the word, the word they use in verse 7 is literally command. Let me go back. Do you see the word command in there at all? No. So they're, they're twisting the words for their purposes. It says, if a man divorces a woman, he must provide her with a certificate of divorce. So the, Jesus is actually exposing the Pharisees. And they think they're exposing Jesus as not being familiar with the law of Moses. And obviously, that's not the case. Jesus is well aware of this verse, and, and he corrects their understanding of it. His response in verse 8, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So there's a big difference between commanded and permitted. And that's that one little word change really changes the meaning of it. He's addressing the Pharisees, again, rebuking them for having hardened hearts, but he's really referring to all humans. And again, he refers back to Genesis. The first humans were a model for the intended purpose of marriage, for the two to become one permanently in a covenant relationship. However, human hearts, of course, became hardened and corrupted by sin, and so at times humans would break their covenants between each other, destroy that bond. So Moses, especially by, by correcting that wording, from going from commanded to permitted, uh, he's saying that Moses was not even really justifying divorce, much less commanding people to do it. The law regarding divorce in Deuteronomy is actually a recognition that because of sin, divorce is going to be in some cases inevitable. And in fact, this law was designed as a protection for women. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy 24, you can see this. So if a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she goes out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the, the latter husband turns against her, writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, the way this is worded, it might sound a little strange or confusing because it's pretty removed from our culture. But ultimately, what this is saying is, is the law is a concession for the inevitability of divorce in certain situations. And essentially, this is a prohibition from a man mar uh, divorcing a woman and then marrying her again willy-nilly, basically just discarding her and using her as like property. Now, it's important to realize this is not, what this is saying is not a law prohibiting couples from reconciling after uh, falling out. It's a response to something that was happening in their culture at the time, which was men treating women like property, just reacquiring them at will. So this law ultimately is, at its core, a call to view marriage, not as something that you can flippantly turn on and off, but as a covenant partnership. And to take breaking that partnership as a grave, serious matter. It's something that ne is never desirable, 
But Jesus, like Moses, recognizes that human sinfulness can sometimes damage marriage to the point of no repair. And we don't actually see how Matthew, or in Matthew, how the Pharisees responded to Jesus, to this answer. However, what we do get is the disciples' response in verse 10, which I think is wild. Matthew 19.10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I mean, if that doesn't tell you how bad the culture of marriage was at the time, I don't know what will. I mean, divorce, granted, is rampant in our culture today. We see far too much of it, but I think it had to have been even worse for them then. Now, I can't prove that because we don't have like exact divorce rate numbers, um, but it's clearly that divorce was just acceptable to them. It was expected as a way of life for the Jews. And of course, in other cultures as well, it was similar in other surrounding cultures that they kind of picked up on this, this practice. Whoa. Almost. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. Not sure what that was. Uh, but the, so other cultures were, were, had this issue. I know, my heart's like pounding. <laughs> um, but the Jews of all people were supposed to understand the value and the importance of covenantal partnership better than anyone else. They should have understood that marriage is meant to reflect the permanent two-way partnership that God made with humans and has always been faithful to keep to us. And yet when Jesus teaches this to his followers, this expectation of marriage being a forever commitment, his followers think it's so burdensome, it's such a high expectation, that it's just going to be easier not to marry at all. They conclude that if marriage covenants are to be permanent, then lifelong celibacy is a better option. Wow! And to be fair, it's true that celibacy would be better than unfaithfulness. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't deny that. However, that's just not everyone's calling, and it's certainly not the, the norm or the design for humanity. The design for humanity in general is to marry, to reproduce, and have families. Of course, we have an incredibly diverse and populated world, so there certainly are exceptions to that general rule, and Jesus uses eunuchs, which were just common in their culture, as somewhat of an obvious example. So eunuchs or, or castrated men are not so common now, so it might seem like an odd illustration to us, but it would have made perfect sense to his disciples. And Jesus is certainly not, not suggesting voluntary castration. He's affirming that it is acceptable and even noble for someone who is either unable to marry or unable to have children, to embrace that as a gift. Dare I say that it's a gift to be spared from the burden of marriage? <laughs> Maybe I won't put it that way. Marriage is truly a, an incredible gift. Children are incredible gifts. But it's important to realize that those are not the only things in life that give us purpose and value. They aren't our whole identity. All humans, regardless of your marital status or the size of your family, we all have inherent and immeasurable value because we are all created in the image of God. We are all his children. Any human's ultimate purpose can be fulfilled 
by loving God and loving others. And with the absence of marriage, even spend more time and energy dedicated to pursuing those things. The the Apostle Paul was unmarried and he embraced it. He, He addresses this topic in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 11 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, the two become one. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, referring to singleness. However, each man has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul here is simply echoing Jesus' call for marriage to be a lifelong commitment while recognizing there will still be times when marriages are broken and acknowledging celibacy as being preferable to sexual immorality while recognizing that at the same time, realistically, not everyone can or should be celibate their whole lives. Now note that in this passage, as with Deuteronomy, it's addressed only towards men, right? And that's only because at that time, believe it or not, only men had any legal right to divorce their wives. Wives could not legally divorce their husbands. They could only run away. In fact, while wives were expected to be completely faithful to their husbands, if they were unfaithful, they could actually be killed for it, husbands were allowed to have affairs with other women as long as they were single, so they weren't having it with someone else's wife. And it was totally fine. Isn't that messed up? It wasn't even considered adultery as long as she was single. Husbands are supposed to model the unconditional love and faithfulness that God shows us. And we as his bride can always rely on him to provide for us and to be there for us. So for husbands to treat their wives like property is to spit in the face of our creator. It's like that wicked servant from the last chapter who's forgiven an enormous debt only to go then demand payment from another servant. And realize that in the context of this this passage, it's addressed to men, but the principle applies in in our culture both ways. I think that goes without saying. But it, it does bring up the important observation that Jesus' overall intention here is not to specify every single possible exception for divorce. There are other situations of, of sinful behavior that may, uh, may warrant divorce, such as uh, abuse. 
the emphasis here is not to provide a list of exceptions, but to emphasize the importance of keeping marriages intact, if at all possible. And we've actually already visited this, this topic. If you've been with us for a while, uh, we've been in Matthew, what, a year and a half, um, back towards the beginning of Matthew. If you want to flip back to Matthew chapter 5, I want to review what Jesus said about this during the Sermon on the Mount. You'll even see some of the same illustrations used that we saw in chapter 18 with the, the eyes and the, the hands. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, Rakah shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Paul says the same thing about communion, by the way. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. And you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, that goes both ways for men and women. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose some of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now it was said, he quotes Moses, Whoever sends his wife away, let him uh, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes or no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. So yeah, a lot of this teaching is actually redundant, but apparently it's important enough that it bears repeating in Matthew. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing how the law is meant to focus on issues of the heart rather than be an exhaustive list of rules and regulations. He says, yes, murder is wrong, adultery is wrong, lying is wrong. These are core moral teachings of Jewish law. But simply not murdering someone is not truly a fulfillment of the law. Murder isn't just wrong because it's ending a sacred human life. That's part of it. But the root of the issue, the underlying cause, is a failure to love our neighbors as ourselves, failure to recognize the sanctity of life and to see each other as fellow image bearers of God, of the all-powerful King of the universe. This really goes for any sin against each other and breaking a marriage covenant is no exception. I'm going to go now to the book of Malachi. I don't have the whole passage up on the screen, but I'll put the verses up here. I'm going to read from chapter 2, which uses really strong language to describe how disgusting the situation is 
when there's unfaithfulness in a covenant relationship. Malachi 2.1 says, And now this commandment is for you, O priests. He's targeting the priests specifically who are supposed to be at the most intimate relationship with God. If you do not listen, and if you do not set it upon your heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts, I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not setting it upon your heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your seed, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. I want to pause there, because that word, you might, you, there's probably half a dozen different translations of that word in this room, depending on what you have. It might be waste. Um, the, the word is a Greek word that means basically the putrid contents of someone's gut. So depending on which way it comes out, that's either feces or vomit. And he's saying he's going to spread it on their faces. That's disgusting. I really wanted to name, name this message uh, eunuchs and feces, and Mike didn't let me, so. <laughs> then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant may continue with Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as something to be feared, so he feared me and stood in awe of my name. Instruction of truth was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. So I also have made you despised and low before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us all? Why do we deal treacherously against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may Yahweh cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or presents an offering to Yahweh of hosts. And this is a second thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or receives it as acceptable from your hand. And you say, for what reason? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so, even one who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly seed? Be careful then to keep your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says Yahweh of hosts. Be careful then to keep your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So it's a long passage, but it just really shows you how much God cares about his covenants with his people and how marriage is, is really a great representation of that. God's love for us is faithful and steadfast. It endures forever. It's unconditional. Nothing we ever do can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we should take advantage of that love by prostituting ourselves to other gods, 
idols, infatuations, and love of anything in this world more than our Creator. It does mean that we should show that love to others, to treat each other with dignity and respect, be loyal and committed in our marriages and in all of our relationships, willing to forgive others as we've been forgiven by God. Lord, I thank you for your unending mercy and forgiveness for us. Help us learn how to better respond to that love with grace and love and mercy and help us to be beacons of of light and love to those in our lives. Lord, strengthen our marriages and our relationships with our spouses and our families. Keep us from temptation to go astray, uh, whether with other people or with, with other obsessions, emotionally, physically, Help us to become more and more dedicated and and loving in our relationships every day. And through that, learn more about how you love us and forgive us. In Jesus' name.